Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Android Bytes podcast powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and I'm joined each week by Michelle Rahman, where we're breaking down some of the biggest stories in the Android world about the Android platform, the OS itself, and a lot of technical topics that you probably won't hear about anywhere else. On this week's episode, we're discussing the Google Requirements Freeze, an obscure program designed by Google to aid in the OEM OS update process for Android devices. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Today, I have on the show um, Rashed Abdel-Tawab, who is a software developer and engineer. He is one of the directors of the Linear OS project and has been involved in custom ROM development with the community for many years now. And he's also working for a company that does some Android-related work as well. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Rashid. Thanks for having me. So today's topic is going to be something that many people are not familiar with, and it's a program called Google Requirements Freeze. You may not have ever heard of that name before because it's not something that Google has ever publicly announced, but it has a monumental impact on the way Android updates are architected and distributed. And because of that, I wanted to invite an expert in working with Android updates. And that's why I invited Rochette onto. So for a bit of background information, for those of you who aren't familiar, Google has been trying to reduce Android OS version fragmentation for years now. This is a multi-year, multi-project initiative that, you know, they've been hammering at for years now. And it all started back in the Android 8.0 Oreo era with the first initiative in their multi-year project, which is called Project Treble. You've probably heard of Project Treble a lot because it's, you know, Google likes to tout it as the fundamental reason why Android updates are getting better and better every year. Project Treble re-architected Android to separate the OS framework from vendor-specific code. Before Project Treble, the system partition on an Android device will contain not only the OS framework, but also hardware abstraction layers, which is basically the software that enables a device to communicate with the underlying hardware of that device. With Project Treble, however, Google decided to move those hardware abstraction layers out of the system partition and instead put them into a new vendor partition, which contains vendor-specific code. Then Google created a standard interface for those hardware abstraction layers to communicate with the OS framework, as well as a uh, vendor test suite that manufacturers can use to verify whether or not they implemented Treble support correctly or not. If Treble was implemented correctly, then it'd be possible to flash a generic build of Android onto the system partition and then have it boot up with most hardware functionality intact. On top of that, with Treble, Google also guaranteed that every new Android OS version would be backward compatible with the vendor implementation made for the previous three OS versions. Because of this, OEMs could theoretically get right to work on developing their own custom forks of Android with their own software additions and apps as soon as Google made the source code available to them. That would give them more time to work on their custom builds of Android and hopefully roll them out more quickly to users. So we've seen these um, figures and these graphs from Google that basically show, hey, every Android OS release is being propagated to devices more quickly. And so I wanted to ask Rashad, do you think Project Treble has, had a, has actually had a measurable impact on the faster adoption rates of new OS versions? Because from some developers I've spoken to, I've been kind of skeptical 
of how impactful Project Treble really has been? So I do actually. Google's empirical data shows that there has been a notable increase in the speed that the devices are updated with. And I think most of us in the customer own community and a lot of users as a whole have actually seen the direct effects of that. To get out of the way, I think Treble hasn't been the magic bullet that everyone thought that it was going to be when it was first announced back with Android 8. A lot of people thought, oh, Treble, sweet. Android version agnostic hardware layers. Well, yeah, it wasn't exactly like that. And a lot of us in the customer community very quickly came to realize that. But what it has enabled is a more defined uh, structure around the communication between hardware and the Android framework itself, which has itself enabled vendors to update their devices, uh, I'm going to say better, uh, not just more frequently, but also maintaining compatibility, uh, actually meeting the requirements around certain house. Previously, it wasn't really uncommon that you'd see, okay, this thing is labeled version 1.2. It must do X, Y, and Z, right? No, it didn't. Trouble's actually put a lot of structure around it. And that in and of itself has kind of just helped updates go smoother and faster historically. Before Project Trouble, you'd say that there was not a lot of structure in the way, you know, the Android OS framework would communicate with vendor house. Is that correct? There's a lot of fragmentation is that a term that everyone likes to use. Yeah, obviously the the ways that the Android framework would communicate with the hardware abstraction layers was defined, but it was, uh, how do I say it properly? It wasn't reliable. Vendors could pick and choose what they implemented or what their house, well, it's short for hardware abstraction layer did, right? A uh, vendor. Uh, say audio, right? Uh, some vendors chose to implement in-call music. Others didn't. There was no version attached to the how. There was no requirement attached to it. So then you were kind of left guessing, does my phone do this? Does it not? Sometimes updates would add features. Sometimes it would destroy them. So it wasn't, the communication itself was fine for the most part. It was just, there was no structure around the actual house. There was no definition, but that of course changed with the introduction of Treble and with Android 8. And I think one way to readily demonstrate exactly how that communication between the OS and those vendor implementations and actually changed is to look at how generic system images um, work on Android. So if you're not familiar, a generic system image is basically the AOSP image compiled straight from source without any modifications. And if you were to install a generic system image onto a Project Treble compatible device, you could boot it up and you could verify which hardware functionality works without any modifications and which do not. Previous versions of Android, it'd be a big hit or miss whether or not a fresh AOSP build compiled from source would actually boot on a device. You'd probably have to do a lot of hacks to make that work. So um, Rashad, I'd like to ask you a question. Can you talk about some of those, some of the work that you'd have to do prior to Project Treble in order to boot AOSP onto a Android device, and then how that changed with the introduction of Treble and GSIs. Sure. So back in the day, way back before Treble, or we're calling it the pre-Treble era, 
developers really have to get nifty, right? I'm going to, again, stick to my audio pal example. Sometimes you'd have an audio file, but didn't really do everything it was supposed to. Now, what do I mean by that? You could load it in, right, with AOSP, and you could be missing a, for those who aren't developers, a symbol is basically a line of code somewhere else in another part of the operating system that is expected by this first part. So if I'm in the audio pal and I expect symbol X, Y, and Z in some app and I don't find it, there was, there's no graceful way to fail out of that. So you ran into stuff like that a lot. Vendors would be adding their own additions to the house, right? <clears throat> Samsung or LG or HTC or whoever would add their own custom sauce, custom microphone enhancements, custom rotation checking. So if you flip your phone one way or the other, the, the sound moves. So they did a lot of stuff like that, but none of that was compatible with AOSP. Whenever a developer would be porting a device to run AOSP, they'd run into a whole host of all these issues. It's go, this symbol not found. Well, yeah, this isn't an HTC operating system, HTC for commander, excuse me. Of course it doesn't find it. And we would have to come up with solutions to that, whether that's defining the symbol somehow, like you could just kind of add it somewhere and basically have it stubbed. What that means is basically it's there, but it doesn't do anything just so the HAL is happy with it. Other developers usually had to write shims and what that is, basically it's a wrapper, right? So you could move the manufacturer's audio HAL somewhere, write your own, that's basically a wrapper and then pass through calls. So if the system says, I want to do, make the speakers do X, it would go through your HAL and then go to the vendors, but you form the calls and the interactions in ways that the vendor HAL would, would actually do want it to. The translation layer. So there's a whole lot of things that we would have to do pre-treble to make these things work. Because again, vendors didn't have to abide by any sort of standard. The existing mechanisms for how communications weren't defined. Vendors could do whatever they wanted to them. And they did. Yeah, that must have been a nightmare for developers to, or community developers to deal with, considering that many device makers didn't natively, you know, consider AOSP-based development for their devices. They were only considered or concerned with, you know, shipping their own forks of Android and making sure their own forks of Android can communicate with all the hardware abstraction layers on the device. That led to a lot of effort being, being something that developers would have to put into in order to make those builds of Android work unofficially. So uh, pre-treble, post-treble, very different worlds. And standardizing that communication helped a lot, actually, with the um, custom ROM development community, with the proliferation of generic system images, you know, enabling developers to ship the same system image across multiple devices. But, you know, that also helped device makers ship their own builds of Android more quickly by enabling them to spend more time developing their own software. The GSI is not really intended to be a tool for third-party developers. It's more just intended for compatibility testing to ensure that the device maker actually implemented treble correct. But, you know, anything that Google does to speed up and standardize the way Android updates work will have a added effect of helping out 
the community developers who are working on, you know, projects such as Lineage OS? Of course. And we reap the benefits of trouble massively. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. So it's, uh, no one's isolated in the Android ecosystem, obviously. Yeah, there are tons of players involved in, you know, starting the source code syncing and actually getting that new Android OS version or update onto your device. There are the silicon vendors, there's Google, there's the OEM, there's carriers, you know, and there's so many intermediaries. There's so many certification companies, there are third-party testing labs. It's just a very complex factory of entities going from Google all the way to the end user getting that device. So when one of the most important players in this pipeline is the silicon vendor, because they are the ones who are writing the drivers that, you know, define how Android and the Linux kernel can actually interface with the hardware in that SOC. And you probably noticed, or you heard online, if you're on Twitter or Reddit, or you browse many of the tech blogs that many people seem to blame Silicon vendors for being the primary reason why smartphones seem to be stuck at two or three years of updates. I wanted to ask you, Rashad, how fair do you think that criticism is? Do you think Silicon vendors hold most of the blame or do you think, you know, there, it's a complicated web or somewhere else, um, the blame? I think it's honestly a complicated web. It's easy to blame the Silicon vendor, right? Silicon vendor provides most of the actual hardware support, right? But there are ways that vendor, that actual phone vendors can work around that. Now, just a refresher, obviously, you, know, you guys know this, but for those listening, the way that Android basically builds are made is with a few key, sorry there, lost the mute. <laughs> um, as I was saying, so the way that Android updates or the system itself is structured, there's a lot of components from different players, let's call them. There's the phone vendor, right? The actual end company that sells you the phone. And they're responsible for putting it all together. There's the AOSP base, basically Android itself. Google provides that. There's the core hardware functionality, and that's provided by the SOC vendor. There's other little pieces. If you're using fingerprint sensor, obviously you have to incorporate the support package for that. If you're using different cameras, different screen, different, et cetera. Yeah. But in the end, the phone manufacturer is responsible for putting it all together. And historically, they've taken the easy way out where let's say that they have a BSP board support package from let's say Qualcomm or any other SOC vendor, and they've got that for Android 11. If Qualcomm never updated the BSP for that chipset to 12, the vendor would historically just kind of sit back and say, uh, out of my control, we can't update this phone of 12, right? They tried to ship blame to the SOC vendor. Now, why I think it's more of a complicated answer is because the hardware vendor, the actual OEM, they can update it themselves. Historically, there have been companies that have updated BSPs on their own. Google to this day doesn't. Essential used to do it while they existed. Samsung has done it a few times. So it's not out of the question for an actual phone maker to update the BSP themselves. And a lot of them that 
have chosen to do that. It basically allows them to fully control their stack, right? We've validated this at VSP version, and we're just going to keep updating it. There's nothing new going into here. There isn't this how is it randomly going to change because Qualcomm updated it in a way that we didn't expect. So it allows for more stability. It's actually why Google has chosen to do that themselves. So the SOC vendor not updating it is kind of an excuse. It's an understandable excuse that vendors get, that OEMs get, right? It's hard to maintain your own VSP, but it's not impossible. And they could do it if they really wanted to. That's an interesting perspective. And I don't think one that we've, we've really had shared on the show before, because you're right, Rashad, it is way more complex than, you know, even I understood it totally differently, probably two or three years ago. And I think treble and then the constant media attention around Android updates has started to really paint that much more nuanced picture that you're describing here, which we've talked about on the show before. It's just really that it's hard to blame any one party because there are so many points in the chain where somebody could be quote unquote responsible for the device getting updated. But as you say, it really is at the end of the day, a matter of wills. It's not a matter of this is technically impossible. It's how much money, how many resources, how much time. And for a BSP vendor like Qualcomm, they are more than happy, as far as I know, to take your money to keep updating a BSP, you can pay them to do that. For example, if you wanted to keep a particular model of device supported past a certain window, I'm sure there is a number on a check you could write <laughs> that would make Qualcomm do that. Granted, there's not much financial incentive there because what the vendors say and what they know from customer SAT reports is that most customers don't care about the underlying Android version and why would they? And so... I think that with GRF, that's a piece of color that I'm really seeing with it here is that Google is giving into what the vendors are probably telling them about customers and end users, which is that the end, the underlying platform version is much less important than that phone continuing to function normally and the way the consumer expects for the duration they own it. And that's true, not just of smartphones, that's true of any device. Arguably, in our world where we're talking about single-purpose devices, that stability is far more important than a consumer smartphone. And so that's kind of what I see here, at least, is Google kind of relenting there and saying, okay, we understand that consumers don't care about this as much. This is a way for us to kind of balance those concerns. Oh, I agree. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Developers and, and companies and that don't necessarily always know what their consumers want and they'll react different ways. Like you can design feature X, but then users use it in ways that you never expected. So I do believe that a lot of this is kind of originating from that, that what do users actually care about? So for example, a big part of Google's push for updates has been around security updates. I care about security updates. Your average user off the street doesn't care. And I hate to say it, but if you grab someone off the street and you ask them, what's your Android security patch version, they're going to glaze, their eyes are going to glaze over and ask you, what? Like they don't care. They get monthly updates and they don't really know what they do, nor do they really care. They just notice, Ooh, this button's new, right? They don't care that you patch the stage fright bug in the background. 
Yeah. You know, even though it is, you know, ultimately a financial decision by on the part of device makers and silicon vendors to decide how long should this platform or device be supported for, and that financial decision is impacted by user preferences and, you know, demand from users. Ultimately, you know, what can Google as a company do to actually affect how long devices and chipsets are supported for? Because, you know, they don't have ultimate control over the way Android is distributed and, you know, over the way updates are rolled out or developed. But what they do have control over is how Android is architected. So that's the angle they've been approaching, starting with Tropic Trouble. Their multi-year approach has been the goal has been to reduce the engineering costs associated with maintaining and rolling out Android updates. What happened with Treble is that because Google is certifying Android OS framework versions for up to N plus three vendor implementations, um, that allows device makers to continue to use the same OS, you know, to, to continue to update their OS framework version. But on the other hand, it has led to Silicon vendors having to support multiple combinations of OS framework versions and vendor implementations. So for example, if a Silicon vendor wants to support Android 11 through 14 on their uh, BSP for whatever chipset they're launching, they'd have to support a vendor implementation that is compatible with Android 11 plus that BSP, then they'd have to update that BSP for Android 12, then Android 13 and Android 14. And they'd have to ensure that, you know, all these combinations are compatible. And because of this complexity, ironically introduced by Project Treble from an SSC vendor's perspective, it's actually made it more difficult, according to Google, and more financially, you know, time consuming and the costs associated with supporting BSPs has gone up. Um, because of this, Google wanted to reduce how many combinations of OS framework and vendor implementations they have to support. So they introduced the Google Requirements Freeze program, which basically allows a silicon vendor to freeze the drivers and howls at the Android OS version they initially launched support for. And that basically means that if you, if a silicon vendor like Qualcomm were to launch a new chipset that supports Android 12, whatever howls and and drivers released supporting Android 12 will be frozen at that launch. So those house and drivers will be carried over to Android 13, 14, 15, et cetera. I wanted to ask you, Rashad, what do you think overall of the GRF program? Many people say, or the developers that I've spoken to say that it's the completion of Project Treble. It's what Project Treble has always meant to be. What do you think of that statement? Do you think this is actually a overall net good? For the Android update ecosystem, do you think it'll actually have some negative impact? I agree pretty much wholeheartedly with that statement. It is finally the last piece of Treble. Historically, when Treble was was released, what I meant really when I said it wasn't the magic bullet, I can kind of speak to that now. You've uh, opened the segue to it. Treble was great in kind of standardizing a lot of things, like standardizing Wi-Fi house, standardizing audio house, standardizing a lot of different things, but it was never perfect, right? An example, if you upgraded from Android 8, so if you have a device running a complete Android 8 stack, and then you upgraded it, you put a Android 9 GSI on it, you lost the ability to use the key guard. The key guard, for those not familiar, is the pin, password, pattern, fingerprints, basically the lock screen. 
you had no lock screen. And that was just the way it was, right? Because of an incompatibility with the Android 8 hardware stack, we're going to call it. Um, now I want to preface that, that I'm 90% sure it was eight to nine, not nine to 10. Um, seeing as we're now on, a, on the 13 previews, it's been a few years and my memory's not serving me nicely today, but that's just an example. Other times you lost certain audio features, um, Wi-Fi wouldn't work. One of the version upgrades, I remember that. Why? Because you couldn't store the password and the encrypted key store. It just wasn't great, right? It was basically still a proof of concept. If you really wanted to do it, then you had to update the vendor stack. You had to recompile the vendor image. Those, for those not familiar, Android is basically split up into a bunch of different partitions. You have your system partition, vendor partition, product partition. So vendor is where all the hardware uh, stack lives. With the Google requirements freeze, Google's finally fixed that, right? And they fixed that in the way that you can actually build a vendor image that targets an older version. When you build Android, right, you have your system parts, you have your vendor parts, everything goes into one compiled image, right? You can never actually build an image, a one final operating system image with system API level 31 and vendor level 29. That was impossible. So you were left with the two choices, basically use a pre-built stack, pre-built vendor image that was from an old version and run into all sorts of issues, right? which means you can't ship that. You cannot send that out into the wild if Wi-Fi doesn't work. Or vendors had to update it, which basically, I'm not gonna say negated the whole point of trouble, but it, again, it wasn't the magic bullet everyone thought. It was, well, okay, cool. I still have to update this how to do X, Y, and Z. I still have to update this and that. I still have to do this. It's not just drag and drop. With the requirements freeze, I'm referring kind of to the technical part of it, you're actually able to build, you're just kind of able to copy paste it over and say, okay, I'm building Android 11, but my vendor stack is targeting Android 10 because that's what it shipped with. And it would work and it does work. And that is actually finally the last piece of treble that vendors kind of have been waiting. Now there's a few nuances, obviously, that you can't actually do what I just said, 11 and build it with 10. You can do 12 and 11, right? Because Google didn't start supporting that un or until vendor stacks built for 11, which is a little side note, but going forward, that is going to be how it is, at least from someone who's looked at the source from the technical side of it. Of course, it does have some drawbacks. The benefits being, of course, that vendors will actually be able to update their devices faster, but there are, are drawbacks in that you will lose some features that you'd expect with operating system updates. Because I'm building a vendor that's targeting an older version of Android, that means I can't support new features. So for example, let me take one that I can think of top of my head. Can't think of one right, right this second. So one example that I um, brought up in my post that covers GRF, you know, in depth is the new disabled 2G toggle introduced in Android 12. That requires an update to the radio hardware abstraction layer. 
And if a device maker were to ship a vendor implementation that targeted Android 11 without updating the radio howl, then whenever the device maker ships an update to Android 12, it would include, it, w- it would not include support for the disabled 2G feature. So that's just one example of a feature that would be missing because of GRF's vendor freeze requirements. That's one example. The USB HAL has had updates before between, say, versions 0 and 0.1 that added some additional modes to it. Without vendors actually updating that, you do, I'm not going to say lose, but lose out on new features. And it's a, it's a balance, obviously. It's do I want to update this device to Android 12, but maybe not have all the new features from 12? Or do I want to leave it on 11? And I think, again, based on kind of how users behave, it's designed actually in a way that's going to enable the most quote user happiness. If a user sees Android 12 update, they're like, okay, cool. My vent, my OEM updated my phone to Android 12. They don't know that they're missing some of these key features, right? But the biggest thing that matters to them most is my device was updated to Android 12. And with that, of course, there are security patches like Android 12 is going to come with security patches over 11. Getting devices on the latest version of Android means that vendors can closely track the latest security patch updates, right? So again, it's a balance, but of course there are those drawbacks that you're not going to get all the hardware support or all the features that are introduced with an operating with an operating system upgrade, contrary to kind of what happens in the P in the legacy PC world where you update to windows 11, you're going to get all the features of windows 11. So this actually, this is, there are two questions I'd love to pose to both of you here because they're both relevant. The first one is, I guess, do we think that even the tier one OEMs are now going to use this as an excuse not to update the vendor image? Or do we think that they're going to continue supporting the correct, like the aligned Android version? Do you, do either of you have an opinion there? So interestingly, very recently, Samsung, they are probably the definition of a tier one OEM. They <laughs> announced that yeah, they will be supporting four generations of OS updates and I believe five years of security updates across their flagship Galaxy S series. And from what I recall, that is actually an additional year beyond what Qualcomm offers with for their BSPs for their flagship 8 series chipsets. So it seems you know, Samsung will be having to do some legwork to update the BSP themselves in order to enable that additional year of support. This was announced post-TRF, so it seems like at least Samsung is putting in the development effort to make that happen. We'll have to see how other device makers respond if they will. And part of it is we don't really know the future, honestly. This could be very easy to do. Say on Android 15, when Google was going to drop support for Android 11 compiled pieces, who knows? It might just work, right? I think the thing there is it's going to be up to vendors, up to Google, and up to the SOC vendor, all three really, to make it work right. If Google's no longer certifying vendor stacks targeting 11 when Android 11, when Android 14 is out, or 15, sorry, then someone like Samsung or even Google themselves will have had to have updated their phone's vendor stacks to something after 11 in order to comply with that. And 
there's going to be some back and forth that we're not going to see, obviously, between the OEMs, Qualcomm, or other chip vendors. Basically, hey, guys, we need this patch for this thing, right? And of course, like I said before, there's there's going to be a check somewhere that's written, right? That's That's what governs it all. So for me, I don't think that... I don't think it's going to be answered one way or the other. I think it's going to be a hybrid mix of everything, right? Most vendors have committed to only providing three years historically. And I think Google's designed this around that three years, but even Google phones themselves, some are three and a half years. The Pixel 6 is five years, which is actually based off of feedback they got from the industry where certain entities like government agencies don't refresh their phones every three years. It's every five years. So. I think we haven't seen the end of this yet. It's still going to play out. And some of these, I'm not going to say requirements, but restrictions or guidelines may end up changing. Yeah. And that, I guess, leads to more of a philosophical question I had, which is over the years, we've seen it. Everybody points to Apple and says, well, they can do eight years of updates. Why can't you? And we know the answers to that is very complex. But with GRF, a company like Samsung has the resources now technically to do that. If they came out with a phone that supported Android 13, let's say, out of the box and had the vendor image targeting Android 13, they could support three years of matching that vendor image and then go an additional four, right, to continue updating it on their own. Right. It's the most difficult part of supporting Android OS updates beyond three years is, of course, passing certification and ensuring that all of the drivers and house you're implementing support the features that Google is requiring for that release and uh, beyond. And, you know, that is not impossible to do with that support from the Silicon vendor, but as Rashad mentioned, it is difficult to do. And only a few entities like Google and the uh, former Essential used to do that. You know, it is possible for Silicon vendors to support their products based pretty much indefinitely. If you look at the Snapdragon 660, I think it was, that platform launched with Android 7.1 Nougat, I believe, and it's now, <laughs> it's getting Android 12 support. It just doesn't die. It's, it continues to get support. It's amazing. And, you know, the end reason is just, you know, it sells a lot. <laughs> so Qualcomm actually has several, I'm going to call them long-term stability chip releases like that. Before it, it was, uh, I remember its code name, MSM8953. I think it was the Snapdragon 430. That was like that. Yeah, well. that one was exceptionally yeah. long. I do remember because that was their yeah. like quad core they put in every budget. Funny enough, actually, on the topic of Essential, their, their little camera that stuck onto the back of the phone magnetically had one of those in it and actually ran a full-fledged version. <laughs> it was like that chip was everywhere. And to this day, like I know manufacturers who are actually designing brand new devices with that SDM 660, the Snapdragon 660. It's, it's again, it's going to be up to kind of to all three, but going off of the Apple example, just a key distinction that I think uh, gets lost when that example is being made is Apple controls their devices from start to finish, from sure. inception to release, right? Complete vertical integration. With a phone, like even the Pixel, it's still not entirely like vertically integrated. There are still components that are sourced from other vendors. For example, the modem on the Pixel 
is sourced from Samsung. The SOC is fabricated by Samsung. So Google does depend on some Samsung components and Google is the only manufacturer that can control their destiny, but someone like Samsung, they depend on Google for the Android security patches. If Google says five years in that, okay, we're done supporting security patches for Android 11, that just shuts the door on every device that's still in the letter, regardless of what the OEM actually wants to do, unless they're going to hire their own researchers or basically backport patches, but that's kind of historically how it's been. So it's because Android devices have a lot of fingers in their pies, I guess, let's call it. So you have Google providing the OS, chip vendors, OEMs, different hardware vendors that becomes very hard to support something as long as an iPhone. So I, I think that Rashad, I know you have a hard out here in five minutes, but I, I'd love to hear both you and Michelle's thoughts on this. As I've been considering this, when I think about GRF, I think that when we look at Android as an ecosystem, the important thing to remember is that most of the devices are not like a Galaxy S21 smartphone. Most of them are much more affordable. You have tons of devices that aren't running GMS either, so they don't even have to abide by this GRF. They could hack and shim their way around it however they want. But in that low-end world, you have tons of devices on two really important emerging platforms for Google TV or Android TV, whichever you want to call it, and Android Automotive, both of which are form factors where consumers do not replace the product for many years. And something like GRF, where the vendor in this situation is not used to having to constantly provide software updates, especially, could be really appealing. So with Android TV, I'm sure you both know, there's been such a huge problem getting vendors to update underlying version because nobody wants to do it. They're crappy little chip makers. They make crappy little chips. And everybody just uses them because they're cheap. Now, if you are one of the companies that uses these chips, which is probably an AM logic, I think, for the most part for Android TV, could you then leverage GRF to say, you know what, we can keep updating this device a little longer or update it at all? I don't even think longer is the right term here <laughs> at all. Is this enough of a burden lift to make it easier for those companies making these lower margin devices? And also that consumers aren't replacing as frequently, so there's not as much incentive to push the big new thing on them. Is this going to make it easier for those platforms? So I think that it's going to kind of be a mix, right? Historically, and actually still currently, a big problem with these, specifically where you said Android TV and Android Automotive, we're still several problems back with updates on these. Even Google themselves aren't really great about updating the Chromecast with Google TV, at least not regular. Well, maybe mine updates, but I don't really see it. But um, historically, they've not been great at updating even the monthly security patches. They've not been great at updating to the latest version of Android. And potentially you could resolve some of the latest version of Android update problems with this. But there are other things that Google's put in place for these platforms that can enable it, I'm not going to say better, but as well. So Google doesn't release a new version of Android TV every time a new version of Android drops, right? I think the latest one, is it still 10 or have they finally released 11? And it's 11. We're already on, yeah, we're already on 13 betas, right? So those are, I'm not going to say they have their own release track, but they're behind. So Google kind of actually accommodates that already 
they continue to maintain like the Android TV version of an operating system version on the side. Automotive is a whole separate can of worms that's several years behind. And chip vendors also are several years behind on that. I think Qualcomm's flagship chip for automotive is still uh, still based on Snapdragon 820. Yes. Yeah, which is... 821, uh, I think, but yeah, close enough. Same thing, yeah. Which is, what was that, 2016? So Something like uh, that. Yeah, those chips are whole other can of worms. But I do think this has the potential, the GRF, it has the potential to enable that, but there's a lot of other stuff that these environments have to get in order before they can get to that point. They're not even doing regular updates in the first place, much less updating the entire system. So I know we're, we're right at the limit of the, you know, taking up your time. So I wanted to thank you, Rashad, for joining us and give you a, a bit of an opportunity to talk about what you do and for your daily day job. Thank you. And we've got a few more minutes, it looks like. So I'm currently the lead product manager at a startup in the DC area called CIS Mobile. We basically design a custom operating system, custom Android distribution, basically, for privacy and security-minded folks. And most of our customers are government-adjacent, right? Your typical smartphone has a lot of really cool features, but a lot of these aren't really ideal for government users. Your advertising ID, for example, on your Pixel, it's great for providing you targeted ads, but if you're an undercover agent somewhere, you don't really want to be tracked that way. So what we do is we actually design an Android distro, an Android ROM that has features requested by our customers, features designed for their use cases, but we also remove certain things. And um, part of that is enabling phones to go in locations they haven't been allowed in before, phones with multiple personas. But basically it's uh, designed around government security and privacy requirements. Uh, so I run the product management team for that. So responsible for gathering feedback from customers, seeing how they use the phones themselves rather than day-to-day. It's interesting to see that there are, there's a growing ecosystem of providers out there using customized versions of Android to, to meet these much more specific and tailored use cases, because Rashad, I'm sure you like, obviously I would hope you would agree that like GMS Android is just not the right fit for everybody in every use case. It just doesn't make sense for a lot of these things. And that's true of anything. Uh, one size fits all is actually one size, one size fits most. You're always going to have people on the peripheries that it doesn't work for. And I say it all the time, like our product's great for its users, but like you hand this to someone off the street and they're going to hate you. They're going to throw it right back at your face. Right. So it's, uh, it is interesting, but it's not unexpected. So there was always going to be as Android matures, there's always going to be people who realize, okay, well. This is great as a consumer, but I need to do X, Y, and Z. And that is the sign of a mature uh, ecosystem kind of where it's not actively developing anymore. Android, I think we all know day-to-day doesn't really change much, even from version to version. It gets facelifts, but does the same things, right? There's nothing drastically new. And that allows basically these peripheries to start forming these 
interest groups to actually customize it in the ways that they need. And that's, you know, actually the space we play in as well. And this is where I plug Esper. If you're not really concerned about a personal handheld device, but you're more concerned about something that just sits in one place all day, or maybe it's a single purpose device, that's really how we like to say dedicated devices. We develop a version of the Android OS for kiosks in a restaurant, a kiosk in an airport, a handheld device for retail management for an employee at a big box store, things like that. The kind of devices that obviously have to have an operating system with rich features, touchscreen support, wireless connectivity, and the kind of APIs that developers can actually leverage to make beautiful and highly functional applications because Android's really good at that. You probably don't want to use GMS to do that. It would be possible. It'd be a real big challenge. So if you're in that space and you're listening and wondering like how we could help you out with kiosk or display signage or some other dedicated Android device, we love anything Android that is weird. We are on exercise bikes. We are on a climbing machine. We're on a bunch of interesting stuff. Reach out to us. It's esper.io. You can set up a demo right there. And this has been Android Bytes, which is powered by Esper. Uh, this show is hosted by myself and Michelle Rahman. And once again, thanks to Rashed from CIS Mobile for joining us today to talk about GRF. Thanks for having me.